science story, huh? Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. And I'm Liz Neely. And this week, we're presenting stories from science journalists who have found themselves on the scene of traumatic events. And these stories are really about what it means to bear witness to tragedy, which is something that we think about a lot at Story Collider. So when I joined Story Collider initially, I did not realize what I was getting into. I just thought, oh, stories about science, right? But really quickly, I realized that as story producers, we were asking people not just to talk about what was sometimes a profoundly difficult life experience, but specifically like to tell us that story, to relive those memories and walk through them together. Mm. And Erin, you do this so well. And I was really impressed by what good listeners our team is. And I think it's why people feel safe in telling us hard things. And I remember, you know, there would be times when a storyteller would then ask like, oh, is it okay if I tell this part of my story? Because I don't want to upset the listeners. And that that kind of broke my heart. But And it also mm. made me realize that if we wanted to take care of our storytellers, but also our producers and our audiences, to the best of our ability, we needed professional help. Um, totally. And luckily, yeah. we, we found that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go to the experts. <laughs> so we recruited two amazing people to our board of director, both a psychologist and a psychiatrist. So now we have Dr. Ali Matu, who you may have seen on a recent Netflix special about the mind explained. He also has a YouTube channel. I met him through Aaron. And Dr. Tracy Guthrie, who's a, a dean at Brown University and a, a psychiatrist. And they're helping us become a trauma-informed organization. Now, what does it mean exactly to be a trauma-informed organization? Because I think I didn't really hear this term until we started thinking about this. Yeah. So I think for us, part of it was like educating ourselves, you know, understanding that, for example, not everybody who goes through something terrible is going to experience traumatic stress or other like long-term lasting consequences. So some people just cope on their own and their reactions diminish and other people need help. Um, It also means that we need to understand that hearing other people's stories day in and day out can cause vicarious trauma, which is quite similar. Um, And basically, I think really what it comes down to is like really appreciating what trauma means and to understand that, you know, I started this by saying we're asking storytellers to dig into these painful experiences, but we understand that this might cause them to be feeling, you know, on guard or anxious or more depressed or feeling helpless as they're working on that story. And so we want to be thoughtful and we want to care for our tellers and our audiences by thinking about this and acknowledging the toll it takes on people. But you know, like, Aaron, we're hardly the first storytelling organization to recognize (laughs) we're in deep waters on these life stories. Totally. Yeah. The Moth, which is sort of the original storytelling organizations close to my heart for many reasons. Uh, but they have this idea that they share with their team about telling stories about scars versus wounds. This idea that 
this thing that you're telling the story about, this trauma should be healed. And it's always with you Mm -hmm. in some way, but it should be healed before you are able to really talk about it in this way. Yeah. And stories can be healing themselves. Yeah. So our first story is from Sarah Kaplan. It was recorded in December 2018 at the Carnegie Institution of Washington in Washington, D.C. The show was presented in partnership with the American Geophysical Union in conjunction with its annual meeting. So I'm a science reporter at the Washington Post. What does that mean? That means I get to spend all of my time telling the most interesting stories in the universe. When I ask questions of my sources, their faces light up because I've just given them a chance to talk about their favorite subject. And when I publish a story, people's eyes widen because they've just learned something new and fascinating about their universe. Every day, I get to feel wonder and curiosity and awe, and I get to share that feeling with other people. And I'm getting paid for it. What a racket, right? (laughs) Most days, I think I have the best job in the world, but not on October 2nd, 2017. The night before, a gunman opened fire on a country music festival in Las Vegas. It is the deadliest mass shooting in recent American history. All day at work, this television monitor by my desk keeps flashing updated death counts from the shooting. 12 people, 25 people, 58 people. Part of me just wants to bury myself in the science story I'm writing about bird migration, but another part just can't tear my eyes away from the carnage on that screen. The scope of the tragedy is so devastating that the Washington Post deploys more than a dozen journalists to Las Vegas to cover it. It's all hands on deck. And so when an editor walks to my desk and asks me if I'm available to help, I say yes. I've never covered anything like this before, but I'm heartbroken and angry and I wanna do something. And as much as I love my beat, this feels like the kind of story I'm supposed to tell. I'm a journalist and this is my chance to use that to make a difference. I think. So I arrive in Las Vegas, and my assignment is to write stories about people who were injured. And my editor tells me to go to the hospital and see if anyone there is there to visit someone who was hurt in the shooting. And I'm standing outside, watching people walk past me, and everyone looks so exhausted and stricken. And though I go up to people and ask if they want to talk to me, nobody does. Uh, One man sort of blows up at me and he says, can't you just leave us alone? After a few hours of this, I go back to my car and cry in the passenger seat, um, feeling really overwhelmed and really, really guilty as I replay that conversation with that man in my head. It hadn't been 36 hours since the worst moment of his life, and now this total stranger wants to ask a bunch of personal and probing questions about what happened? It just feels wrong. Most of the time when I ask my sources questions, that's how I show them that I care about them as people. But this man's message is perfectly clear. If I really cared about him, I would let him be. By the end of the day, I still haven't found anyone who wants to talk to me. And I go back to my hotel room and call 
my friend Jessica, who is one of the best journalists I know. And I tell her, I can't do this. I can't bring these people comfort or solace or help. All I'm doing here is making their pain worse. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I should go back to DC, back to the kinds of science stories I usually cover. Those stories are important, I do believe that, but they feel like lower stakes. All of the life or death questions about dinosaurs were answered 66 million years ago. <laughs> and nothing I do could cause a black hole to feel grief. But Jessica doesn't buy it. She tells me, you're there to bear witness. Not everyone is gonna be ready to talk about what happened. But if even one person does want to, then it's your job to listen. That's what you are. That's what it means to be a journalist. I'm not totally convinced. It feels like she's talking about someone else, someone wiser and more experienced and accomplished than I am. But her pep talk gives me just enough courage to keep trying. I try to imagine that by bearing witness, I can make some meaning out of all this senselessness. So the next day, not able to bring myself to go back to the hospital, I try a church where I meet a pastor who tells me about some members of her congregation who were there for the shooting. And then she introduces me to this young veteran who ran towards the shooting to help, even as other people were running away. And then he introduces me to Paige Melamson. She was at the music festival with her sister and their mom, Rosemary. The tickets had actually been a Mother's Day gift from the two girls. But Rosemary was shot in the chest, and now she's at the hospital, unconscious. They don't know if she's going to be okay. It turns out that the Melansons are the people that Jessica had told me about, the ones who needed to talk and just wanted someone to listen. I end up spending all day at their house, playing with their dogs and hearing their stories. Paige tells me about how her mom makes the best sausage and sauerkraut. Rosemary's husband, Steve, tells me about visiting his wife at the hospital and seeing her in her bed and wanting to just lie down next to her and hold her. But he can't because Rosemary is too fragile to be touched. I wind up writing a story about all of the things I saw in their house, all of that pain and love. And it goes on the front page, which is a pretty big deal for me. Um, it doesn't happen very often when you write about black holes. But um, the best feedback of all is from Rosemary's sister, who tells me the story made her cry. So I go back to DC. And I keep in touch with the Melansons. I text with Steve every so often, partly because I know that my editors are interested in follow-up stories about survivors, but mostly because I just need to know that they're okay. But the updates are devastating. The bullet that hit Rosemary punctured her stomach, and it's making it almost impossible for her to eat. Five months after the shooting, she is one of the last survivors still in the hospital. So I convinced my editor to let me go back to Las Vegas to spend more time with Steve and Paige and Rosemary. And when I get there, it feels like their lives are just as difficult as they were when I first met them, more so now because barely anyone is still paying attention. I show up on Steve's doorstep and he bring, invites me in and he says, nobody understands what this is like. 
Paige has nightmares and can't be in large crowds. Steve hasn't slept in his own bed in five months because he spends every night in the hospital with Rosemary. He has to sleep in this really uncomfortable chair in her hospital room. And Rosemary is still in constant pain. Despite all that, they are some of the kindest people I've ever met. Steve teases me about my terrible favorite baseball team and asks about my family. Rosemary gives me a hug from her hospital bed. And they are unfailingly dedicated to one another. Someone is with Rosemary almost every minute of every day. When I finally have to say goodbye to Steve again, it's impossible not to tear up. And he gives me a hug and he tells me, now you start to understand. When I get back to DC, I have a really hard time living with some of the stories I heard. I feel anxious and I cry a lot, not really knowing why. And I feel guilty again for leaving Steve and Rosemary and, and Paige. I feel like I wish I could do for them what I would do for my friends in that situation, bake them a casserole, volunteer to walk their dogs. I wish I knew that my presence meant as much to them as I usually know when I talk to a scientist and I get to see their faces light up. But the rules of journalism don't allow that. I'm not supposed to get, I'm supposed to maintain a certain emotional distance from the stories I'm covering. I'm not supposed to get so wrapped up in people's lives that I can't be objective. And I'm definitely not supposed to do anything that would change the story I'm trying to tell. My job, like Jessica said, is just to bear witness, even though that really doesn't feel like enough. Again, I wonder if I'm able to do what my job asks of me. Eventually, I settle into my old routine. I write about dinosaurs and black holes and exoplanets. And then one day in July, I get a news alert about a very small, very important subatomic particle called a neutrino. Neutrinos are so tiny that they slip through most matter. If you hold out your hand, tens of thousands of them will pass through it, completely unnoticed every minute. But this fact actually makes them really valuable tools for understanding things that happen in the dark corners of the cosmos. If we can capture them, we can learn all kinds of new things about the universe. The neutrino in this experiment that I'm writing about was detect left its galaxy four billion years ago when Earth was just a newborn. For us to detect it, eons of evolution had to happen, intelligent primates had to evolve, that's us, and then we had to decide, we had to know what neutrinos are, and we had to decide to go down to Antarctica and spend a decade digging into the ice to build a detector capable of capturing this one little particle. Listening to the scientists describe it, I say, wow, that is one lucky neutrino that it got caught. <laughs> and to my surprise, he laughs at me and he says, the neutrino isn't lucky, we are. And for reasons that maybe only make sense in my own nerdy head, that makes me think of the Melansons. I think about how lucky I was to have met these wonderful people and how sad I would have been if their story had slipped through unnoticed. I think about everything that I witnessed in their house, all that heartache and hardship, but also courage and compassion and hope. And I think about that moment when Steve hugged me goodbye and he said, now you start to understand. And I think that something meaningful did come out of it. 
A few weeks after my second story about the Melansons comes out, Steve texts me to say that a reader of the Washington Post paid to have a recliner made for him and shipped to Rosemary's Hospital so that he would have somewhere to sleep when he stays with her. When Rosemary finally came home from the hospital this October, he gave the chair to her, and now she sits in it all the time. I'm still figuring out what it means to be a good person and a good journalist and a good science journalist. But thinking about the neutrino and the Melansons has helped me think about my job a little bit differently. Both stories remind me that change takes understanding, and understanding takes showing up, having patience, bearing witness. Storytelling, like science, is how we make meaning out of what we see. I don't know if it always makes a difference in the world, but it's made the difference to me. That was Sarah Kaplan. Sarah Kaplan is a science writer at The Washington Post. She went to Georgetown University to study international affairs, but fell in love with science after writing a story about snail teeth. (laughs) That (laughs) would make me fall in love with science, too. (laughs) I want to know. While she was working on The Post's overnight team, so an overnight story about snail's teeth. (laughs) Oh, man, late night snail teeth. (laughs) She is now happily diurnal, and she covers news from around the nation and across the universe. I love the part of the story where Sarah's friend tells her, you are there to bear witness. What a powerful statement that is. I just, yeah, those words land with me so heavily. And I think, especially when we are telling science stories or thinking about science in general, we always want to solve problems and fix things, right? It's always about like, what can science Mm. do? But we all know that there are some things science cannot fix and cannot, maybe never will be able to. And so just to to sit there with someone, to not flinch away or abandon them um, or say it's too much, I think is a really powerful human connection. Absolutely. We have one more story to bear witness to today. Our next story is from Marin McKenna. It was recorded in January 2019 at the Highland Inn and Ballroom in Atlanta, Georgia. The theme that night was transformation. On the day after Christmas, 14 years ago, an earthquake tore open the floor of the Indian Ocean. The seabed split north and south, and the shockwaves rippled east and west. On the nearest coasts in Indonesia and in Thailand, the waves rolled backward from the beaches, bunching up under tension like the tightening string of a bow. And then the tension broke, and the waves roared forward, a 30-foot wall of water moving faster than an airliner can fly. The waves swamped harbors and jetties and beaches. They tore up trees and crushed concrete and flung steel boats like they were driftwood. They swirled into villages and sucked away people who were fishing and sunbathing and standing in their kitchens 
brewing coffee to start their day. The waves roared back out to the ocean as fast as they had come, and then they calmed and rolled slowly back to the land again. When they reached the scoured beaches, they brought bodies with them. A few days later, I landed in Thailand. I was a newspaper reporter, and my job was to write about epidemics and disasters. I had scooped up a photographer, and we made our way to the devastated coast, and we did what reporters do. We asked people where we could go to see the worst that had happened in order to make it clear to our readers and viewers how dreadful this was. Almost everyone we met said that we should head further north to a coastal province called Pang Na and a temple, a Buddhist monastery known as Wat Yan Yao. In Pang Na, the villages had been erased. All that was left of the houses were squares of tile where the kitchens had been. But the Wat was far enough inland to have escaped the destruction. It was intact in a landscape where almost everything was broken and it was bright, where everything else was covered in mud. You could see the golden angels on its gateway glinting from a long way away. The abbot of the monastery had opened it as a refuge and hundreds of people had gathered there. But they hadn't come alone. They brought the dead with them. By the time we arrived, there were almost 3,000 bodies lying in the temple grounds. There's kind of a ritual that reporters indulge in when we've been doing this for a while. If we know each other well, we've been on the road for a while, maybe we've gotten a little drunk. We talk about our first bodies. Maybe it was a car accident. Maybe you followed a detective to a homicide or arranged to spend the night with some charismatic doctors in the ER. If you've been doing this for a while, it's possible that you'll see as many corpses as cops and doctors do. I had seen more than my share already by the time I got to Thailand. I thought I was hardened. I had no idea how wrong I was. It is impossible to describe to you what 3,000 bodies smell like. The sky was blue and the sun was blistering, but the smell was like a fog that you moved through but couldn't see. It had physicality and heft. It clung to our clothing and our skin. And we could smell it even after the Thai military rolled in with a convoy of refrigerated trucks and locked the bodies away. And as much as we could still smell them, we could still see them, too. 
because photographers had come and taken thousands of pictures of the bodies. And someone had found giant boards of plywood and propped them against the walls of the monastery. The photographs showed scars and hairlines, birthmarks and tattoos, anything that would help distinguish one anonymous corpse from another. Families who had lost someone to the waves came to the Watt to peruse the photographs, looking for a detail that would let them identify a body and bring a loved one home. And I watched them day after day patrol up and down the rows of photographs, and I was in awe of their strength. Because I, too, knew what it was like to confront a photograph that encapsulated the worst days of my life. When I was five years old, my mother died of leukemia. Family history says she only knew that she was sick for about 10 days. I didn't know much about her growing up. My father never spoke of her, and the trauma of her sudden disappearance had taken my memories away. But what I did have was photographs. Family members slipped them to me over the years, thinking that I ought to know more than I did. I never really wanted those photographs. People forced them on me, but I never looked at them very hard. I never asked questions about them. I slid them in envelopes and I stuffed them into drawers. I thought I didn't want to know the middle of the story when I already knew its tragic end. Going to the tsunami changed my mind. Over the weeks, Wat Yanyao had become a graveyard, but it became at the same time a place of resurrection. From 30 countries, forensic teams flew in, volunteering to help, to clean the bodies and measure them, to document their teeth and their fingerprints and the length of their bones. And random volunteers showed up as well. A Canadian who'd been backpacking in Cambodia, a movie extra from New Zealand, a North Carolina fireman. They had never communicated before they arrived at the temple, but they all had the same intention. Someone who spoke English wrote it down for them, found a long piece of paper and tacked it up above the gates of the Wat and scrawled on it in big letters. We will bring them home. Outside the gates, it got busier as well. The families who had come to look at the photographs didn't leave afterward. They came back again and again, day after day. And after a while, they brought their own photographs to add to the boards of plywood. A kid's solemn school photo, honeymooners hugging in the surf, an ID card from an office, girlfriends hoisting cocktails on a beach. 
on each of the photographs on the back, in the handwriting of a dozen countries, they wrote names and towns, ages and cell phone numbers, hoping that someone would make a connection. Side by side with the inexorable proof of death, they reconstructed the stories of lives. One of the volunteers had been a graphic designer in California, and before he got on the plane, he loaded his laptop up with powerful photo editing programs. He took as his job to work on the photos that had been taken of the dead to improve them, reshaping faces, erasing lacerations, putting back the color in skin and hair. One day, he was working on a picture that looked like it had been a young girl, and another volunteer was watching over his shoulder. And after a moment, she stopped him. She said, I know her. I've seen her face. The volunteer went running out the gates of the Watt to the boards where the families had added their photographs. She came running back with a picture of a young girl with a pointed chin and a wistful smile. On the back, there was a name and an age and a cell phone number, and she held the photo up against the laptop screen. They matched. The girl's body was in the coolers. Her family could bring her home. After I got back from Thailand, I took out the photos that I had never wanted to look at. I had watched the survivors of the tsunami confront the evidence of the worst thing they could have imagined. I thought it would honor their courage for me to do the same. In the photos that I had never wanted to receive, I saw my mother as a healthy young woman, studying, smiling, getting dressed up to go to church with my grandparents. In some of them, she was holding hands with my father. In some of them, she was holding me. I began to forgive my relatives for pressing those photos on me when I had not wanted them. And I began to understand the message they wanted me to hear the message I had heard from the tsunami survivors, that when we retrieve the story of a life, we can defy the finality of death. Now, when I think of my mother, I think as well of the volunteers in the temple who ran from all around the world to help. I think of the families knowing how their loved ones' stories ended, insisting that the end was not all there was to tell. It has been 14 years, and I have never forgotten their lessons. When we are shattered, someone will come to gather the pieces for us. When tragedy takes our stories, someone will arrive to tell them back to us. And when we are most lost, 
people will run to find us. And they will bring us home. Thank you. That was Marin McKenna. Marin is an independent journalist who specializes in public health, global health, and food policy. She is a columnist for Wired's Ideas section, a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University, and the author of the 2017 bestseller Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, which received the 2018 Science and Society Award. It's also been published in the UK and other territories under the title Plucked, (laughs) which I like. (laughs) Her earlier award-winning books are Superbug and Beating Back the Devil. She is one of the stars of the 2014 documentary Resistance, and her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore?, has been viewed 1.6 million times and translated into 33 languages. I suggest not paying attention to that particular talk if you're having a sleepless night. Yeah, Man's work wow. is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah and Marin, for your stories today. Thank you. The Story Collider is great for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaring Hallam, Shane Hanlon, Mesa Salida, and Kelly Vinyl. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, which includes Zoe Saunders, Jun Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Highland Inn and Ballroom and the Carnegie Institute of Washington for hosting these shows. And to everyone out there bearing witness right now. Thanks for listening. Thank you.